take a Bible that should be there in front of you in that pew. Um, if, the, if your children are participating in the choir next week, you can take them on back. There you go. I forgot to announce that. So, Okay. Looks like the only one that hasn't found Luke is me. I need to find it. Oh, there it is. I'm going to begin reading at verse 46 and read down through verse 55. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on my humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And his and, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy and he, and, and he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word, for there is no word like your word. Your word is true, it's good, it's beautiful, it's living, it's powerful. It, so our prayer, Father, is that as we consider what we've just read, that you would be present with us by your spirit, that you would be at work in our hearts, showing us wonderful things from your word, and that your word would not merely give us information, but that your word would transform us. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. For these last three Sundays of this month, we are jumping out of our study in James. Lord willing, we'll jump back into that study in January, but for uh, these three remaining weeks of the month, we are, we are going to consider um, some of the songs or some of the testimonies, if you would, out of Luke's gospel. We, we want to do that as a way to just kind of prepare our hearts as we celebrate the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we focus upon uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, we start with this song. Some of the word, as I read it, might sound familiar with what we just sang. Well, that song was taken from this passage, as you can, as you can imagine. Uh, but this morning, we're going to look at Mary's song. Two things I, I want us to consider. Uh, I want us to see something of the intensity of Mary's testimony. And then I want us to glean some insight from Mary's testimony. So let's take those one at a time. Uh, some uh, the intensity of Mary's song and, the, and some insight from Mary's song. But, but before I do that, and uh, you're going to think I'm crazy, but if you've been around me long enough, you probably have thought that before, so I'm just going to re-up your, uh, your awareness of that. But before, I want to do something in a preliminary fashion before I look at those two points. 
And to do that, I want you to take your eyes and I want you to look at those, that very first line that I read to us in verse 46. And Mary said. Now, um, that may not be much of a problem or a quandary uh, for you or, or I. Uh, and before we look at what Mary said, I'm just going to point out the obvious, and that is what we're going to look at concerning what Mary said is actually what Mary said. Okay. Oh, now, um, what I'm, what, here, and here's my point that I want to make in, in this preliminary note here, and that is, Mary said what Luke said that Mary said. Um, I point this out not because uh, it's a controversy in my own heart. Um, Luke said, Mary said it, and I'm happy about that. I'm okay with that. I, I, I have no grounds or basis to kick a fuss over that and, and and, 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 and yet I, I point out what seemingly is obvious, and Mary said, Luke is recording what Mary said, uh, saying that Mary said it, uh, because really this is a point about the truthfulness of the Scriptures. In other words, when, when the Scriptures tell us that Mary said it, we can count on that. We, we, we can rest in that. We can, and therefore, since it's true, it's, it's therefore immensely authoritative over our lives. Everything in God's word is, is true. Now, and so I point this out, and Mary said, uh, is because while it's not a controversial, controversial statement for me and probably not for, for, for any of you, um, there are still, I don't want us to be naive about these things, there are still, if you would, little devils running around the land suggesting the same thing that the big devil said to Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Questioning the veracity or the truthfulness of God's word is always a strategy for the devil. Uh, the one, the big one who took the form of a snake in the garden with Adam and Eve, uh, but also the little ones who take the form of academicians and scholars. I want us to be prepared, particularly when we send off our children and our grandchildren to college. One of the first things that they will attempt to suggest is, did God really say? They will they will suggest to our children and grandchildren, uh, they will call into question the truthfulness of God's word. You say, well, no, no, that's why I'm going to send my kid to a Christian college. That's why we're having this conversation this morning. I would like to think that every Christian college would just simply say, Luke said, Mary said it, and so Mary said it. Um, but, but some people get educated way beyond their intelligence, and they... They, they would, I've heard it suggested that if Mary was here with us this morning, sitting in the service, and if, if Mary read what I just read, Mary wouldn't recognize uh, what I just read. She'd say, I, I, I didn't say that. Scholars suggest that because, because in a sense, they are amazed, they're probably, probably a little bit jealous, actually. They are amazed that, that some young Jewish 
peasant girl could know as much of the Old Testament as Mary knows. Because if you read this song, Mary is, is uh, bleeding out Old Testament references and truths and scriptures. And be like, there's no way some ignorant little peasant Jewish girl could know all of that Bible. Isn't it humbling that a peasant girl could know more than the learned scholars? On top of that, they say, and there's no way that this unlearned little peasant girl could, could not only have that knowledge of Old Testament scriptures, but that she could write such beautiful poetry. They say that such tasks are, are too high and lofty for someone as lowly as, as Mary. And so they would suggest Mary wouldn't recognize a thing here in terms of what, what Luke said that she said. Now, they'll do the same thing for Jesus. They'll say if Jesus was here this morning, he wouldn't, he wouldn't recognize half of what the scriptures say he said. And, but th these are just uh, subtle little ways to undermine the beauty and the truthfulness of Scripture. And I, I just, I point that out uh, not to ruin anyone's Christmas. Um, uh, the last thing I want to do is ruin your Christmas because you still got your gifts to buy me. And I would hate to, hate to put you in that kind of predicament like that. But, 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 but to remind us um, that there are still those who would wish to denigrate little poor Jewish girls like Mary, but even more than that would wish to denigrate our God, who has given us a book, and it is true, and it is authoritative over our lives. Well, so here's now the rest of verse 46 on into verse 55. Here's what Luke said that Mary said, which she actually said. Uh, uh, my soul magnifies the Lord. Uh, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In other words, Mary is doing more than uh, dispensing information. There is great intensity in Mary's words. Mary, at this point, is now over at her cousin Elizabeth's house. The, the angel had appeared to Mary and had announced to her that she would be, um, uh, be, become pregnant and, uh, and have a child uh, and uh, at the same time, her cousin Elizabeth would be pregnant and have a child. And so she goes and hangs out with Mary for probably about three months, up until almost the time that John the Baptist was, was born. And so here it's in this context that, that, that Mary, after she has now spent some time reflecting upon what the, the angel has announced to her, what God is going to do in and through her, Mary uh, explodes in praise to God. My soul magnifies. It just, that that the, the direction of that is the direction of the God whom she is praising. My soul magnifies the Lord. But then in a parallel fashion, she doubles up and says, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Much like Hebrew poetry, those two lines are parallel to each other and the differences are just a matter of of nuance. The notion of magnifying accentuates the God whom she is praising, and the notion of rejoicing uh, uh, emphasizes um, something of the, the happiness and the joy that she feels in giving this praise to God. So um, you could say that her, her explosion, her intensity is that of exultant exaltation. Exult, meaning she's happy, she's rejoicing, 
exaltation, meaning that it is God to whom she is praising. She is elevating and magnifying God. Now, as we note something of Mary's intensity of her praise, and, uh, and even the words that she dispenses and follows uh, in verses 48 and 49, she focuses upon herself just for a moment in giving this praise to God and, 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 and gladly giving this praise to God. She says, for he has looked on my humble state, the humble state of his servant. Uh, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty done great things for me, and holy is his name. Do you see the focus? Do you see the, the emphasis? Do you see the trajectory of Mary's glad praise? It, it, it is focused upon, it is tilted toward God. You and I should have a wonderful place in our hearts for Mary. Mary is an incredible example of someone who believed in the Lord God and obeyed the Lord God. Even when the angel earlier came to her explaining to Mary that she would have a son, though still a virgin, it was not clear in Mary's mind how that sort of thing works. And, and, and so while she was dazed in a bit of confusion of, how it is that a virgin could become pregnant, she simply says to the angel, be it done unto me according to your word. What an astonishing statement of someone who didn't quite understand everything that was being explained to her, but someone who nonetheless knew that she could trust in this God who was sending this message to her. Mary is a wonderful, beautiful portrait of obedience to God. And you know what? Come Christmas time, or even beyond Christmas time, the church should honor that faithful obedience to God. But the church should not worship Mary. Mary is not worshiping Mary. Mary is worshiping the Lord, who she says is her God and her Savior. Mary, scandalous as this might sound, Mary needed a Savior. And yet some over-elevate Mary. In the, even in the name of Christianity, they, they step on the authority of Scripture and they elevate Mary uh, to uh, notions that are way beyond what is written in the scriptures. And they encourage the worship of Mary. They encourage prayer to Mary. That's not for me to pick a fight on this matter. But uh, the scripture knows nothing of Mary being a sinless person. The scripture knows nothing of Mary herself being immaculately born. The scripture knows nothing of the perpetuality of Mary's virginity. And the scripture knows nothing of the bodily assumption or the taking up of Mary bodily into heaven. You see, the scripture teaches us 
that Mary is not to be worshipped, but Mary is a model for you and I for how we should worship the one true God. We can learn much from her as she worships the one true God with a magnification of the God who is her Savior and with a happiness and a rejoicing and a gladness over what this God has done for her, but not only for what this God has done for her, but as we shift to verses 50 to 55, she broadens it, uh, and her intensity continues even as she provides us wonderful, important insight as to what kinds of things this baby whom she is carrying is going to do, not just for her, but for the whole world. Let's touch on the second point. It's going to take up maybe a little bit longer to look at the second point, but we'll try to do this quickly. There's the intensity of her testimony, and then there's some insight from her testimony. And so um, look at beginning at verse 50. Let me read verses 50 to 55 again, and then we'll try to parse out some of the information or insight that Mary is providing to us to help us to get a clarity of focus as to what this Christmas thing uh, concerns, who it's about and what it's about. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. We'll come back to that, but let me read on. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary turns from describing what God has done for her, a lowly, humble servant, to what he is doing on a much larger and broader scale through this announcement of the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and to, to collapse what I've just read, I, I want us to consider three aspects of God's nature and character that are shining through in verses 50 to 55, three traits or qualities of God that's found here. I'm going to take the first two together. Uh, this, as, he's, as, she's, as she's already alluded to in verse 49, he who is mighty, uh, verses 50 to 55 uh, describe further and even deeper and more detail something of the might of God. Our God is mighty. Our God is strong. And yet coupled with that, in fact, probably even the, the notion of God that's even more stressed here than his might is something of God's mercy. He, he says that in verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And do you see how he caps that off in verse 54? He has helped his servant Israel. Remember, she's alluded to herself as a servant, and now she's saying the people of Israel are his servant. 
he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Notions of mercy just permeate all of the descriptions of God's mighty activity that's in play here. Um, Mary knows that with the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is now a profound outpouring of God's mercy. Psalm 103, verse 17, which Psalm 103 is so sweet through and through, but verse 17 of Psalm 103 says, says this, connected to what Mary has just said here in verse 50, she, the, but the psalmist says, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Mary says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, let me, let me define a couple of terms here, lest we get sloppy. First of all, just the notion of, wow, his mercy is for those who fear him. Well, the scriptures teach us that there's two kinds of fear in play. There's a good kind of fear, and there's a bad kind of fear. For instance, remember in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned against God, and then God showed up to meet with them, and they ran and hid from God, and they explained that they ran and hid from God because they were afraid. They were afraid of God. They were afraid of God because God was still holy, but they no longer were in right relationship with God. They had rebelled against him and broken that relationship. And so they feared God in a negative way. They, they feared God out of a disdain or distaste or even hatred or animosity toward God. That's not the kind of fear that's being described here. His mercy is for those who fear him. Though the scriptures describe another kind of fear, and that's really a fear of God that's rooted in a, a warmth toward God, a, an awe, a respect, a love, a, a desire to worship God, a desire to, to honor him, a desire to love him. And so really the two kinds of fear are really connected to the affections of love and hate. And really what he's saying, his mercy is, um, is for those who fear him, those who fear him in the proper sense of fearing him, for those who are in awe of God, for those who, like Mary, are, are, are compliant and worshipful to God, those who, who want to trust and depend upon God, those who want to obey and honor God. Mary is telling us that this mercy, this grace, this steadfast love of God is going to be found in her son, Jesus. Now, God was merciful long before Jesus shows up. But I'm telling you that when Jesus shows up, all of the channeled mercy of God gets magnified and accentuated upon the arrival of Jesus. The last thing you want me to hear is that God was never merciful before Jesus got here. But what I am telling you is that something got kicked up a whole other layer or notch or two that when Jesus arrived. So really what Mary is already telling us, that the testimony that Mary is making to you and I this morning, the word about Christmas that Mary is sharing with us is that all who even this morning seek the Lord, 
all who even this morning desire to love the Lord and worship him, all who desire this morning to obey him and rely upon him are people in whom the mercy of God has drenched. Those who who feel and recognize their humble estate, which, by the way, there are only two kinds of humble people. There are humble people who realize they have great reason to be humble. And then there are those who don't realize they have great reason to be humble. Mary realizes she is in the category of she realizes that she has great reason to be humble before God. And if you and I are here this morning and we have enough sense to realize that we have great reason to be humble before the God who made us, that is a mercy of God. It's kind of like the song we sing, it's the Baptist national anthem, but the line goes, was, uh, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. It was mercy that taught my heart to rightly fear him, and it was mercy that relieved me of all my fears that, that were not in accordance with honoring. Really what Mary would say to us this morning is that mercy is only experienced in a heart posture that reveres God. Mercy is only experienced in a heart posture that loves and adores and worships God, that she herself is modeling for us. She is showing that mercy has written all all over her. But as we sit here this morning... Maybe there's some who've never turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy of God is not upon you. Okay, so what's the alternative? The alternative, this is tragic, the alternative is that the justice of God is upon you. There's narrow one of us this morning in our own standing before a holy God who would not deserve to be condemned in our sin and rebellion. There's there's narrow one of us here this morning who could not stand up and boast in and of ourselves that we have loved God the way he ought to be loved, that we have trusted in God the way he ought to be trusted in, that we have worshiped God in the way that he is worthy to be worshiped, that we have obeyed God in the way that he has clearly laid out obedience in his word. There's narrow one of us this morning that with a dose of honesty wouldn't say, I come up short in each and every one of those categories. And yet, if you find yourself acknowledging that predicament, what a wonderful state of humility. But here's what I want you to realize, that when you turn to the Lord, you find mercy, and yet even in turning to the Lord, what we really find is that his mercy has first found us.
He always gets a leg up on us, if you would. When we turn to him, it's because he's been kindly, patiently, mercifully, graciously, lovingly stirring in our hearts, helping us to make sense of ourselves and our sin and our strange state from him. But he's, he's got this, if you would, because this is why Mary is announcing that he is sending his son, that he's now sending now, if you would, Mary's son, but he's really the father's son. Uh, he's sending him to do a work for his people, for us and for our salvation. And this mercy is displayed in all of the particular statements that he specifies in verses 51, 52, 53, and 54, that, that his mercy is coupled with his might, that he is, in fact, not wimpy in his mercy, but he is mighty in his mercy. It's one thing to be just a really good guy and just wish you could like muster up some mercy to show people. It's a whole other thing to be mighty God who has de determined to show mercy and who's got the arm strength, the muscle to pull off such a display of mercy. And yet, and yet that's what Mary goes on record to says, says about the Lord and what the Lord will do through his son Jesus he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in, his, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought low the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now, the, the, the first thing that strikes me over what I've just read is the verb tense. What is he, he has, he has, he has, he has, he has. What do you mean he has? Jesus hasn't even um, showed up yet. He's in utero, but, but he's not, he's, he's not all, he's, He's not grown up yet and begun his ministry, and, 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 and yet, uh, he, even though he's not yet been born, uh, Mary is announcing these things as settled facts. I would suggest to you why Mary is stating these things with kind of a past mood or tense about them is because on the one hand, these are the kinds of things in one way, shape, form, or another that God has already been doing. Throughout the Old Testament, we find examples replete with how the Lord God has shown his strength, how he has scattered the proud, how he has brought uh, down the mighty, how he has filled the hungry, how he has sent away the rich empty, and how he has helped Israel with his mercy. And, and yet, as sure as Mary is looking back to see that this is kind of the way God has already been working, uh, but, but Mary is now knowing and testifying that all the ways that God has worked in past, all of the mighty acts of God's mercy uh, are just previews throughout the Old Testament 
of what God is going to do in a magnified way with the arrival of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary knows that now God has begun acting in ways that he has already been acting, but now in this final and most decisive way, he will be the God who will make all the wrongs right, and who will right every wrong. Have you watched the news lately? Do you get a sense that things ain't right around here? You want to know why things aren't right around here? In our nation, in our world, in our county, in our state, or however you want to parse out around here. Um, Take a narrow or a wide view of that. Um, When Mary is announcing some of the incredible things that her son Jesus will do, that God will do through his son, she's stating them as done deals, even though he ain't even been born yet. But she's stating them on the basis of God's faithful work in the past in small incremental ways, but she's stating them upon the nature and character of our God who is full of mercy and who is complete in might. This is not going to be too hard for God to do in an even greater way what he's already begun to do in small ways. Mary is announcing the salvation that Jesus will bring. And, and, but yet, what I want you to notice by the description that Mary is giving, when we think of salvation, sometimes we think of it in a very small or narrow way. We think of salvation just simply as Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. And I in no way want to dispute that or take away from that. But what I want to offer to you is that while that is beautiful and immensely true, it is also incomplete. Jesus is doing more than rescuing people like you and I from our sins on a personal level and granting us forgiveness on a personal level. He is doing that. But what Mary is describing, what Jesus is doing, is Jesus is going to flip the whole thing. Mary is describing that Jesus' work of salvation will bring about a complete reversal of this world. That, 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 that Jesus is going to deal with sin, not just on the personal level by which you and I need forgiveness before a holy God, but Jesus is going to go systemic, if you would. He is going to remove Every nook and cranny of the curse and condemnation of sin, as far as, to borrow the hymn, the carol, as far as that curse is found. He's going to root into the hearts of those whose thoughts are proud, and he's going to uh, bring them low. He's going to take those proud who happen to be rich and who are full of themselves and they're proud rich, or he's going to take those who are in political power who also are, and I'm not saying all people who are rich are proud, I'm not saying all people who are in political power are proud, but I'm saying he's particularly put bullseyes on those who are arrogant and in their arrogance happen to flaunt their perceived muscle 
by their wealth and by their power. Jesus is saying that he is going to address that and bring about a, well, you might interpret this differently than I do, but a true revolution, a complete reversal of those fortunes that his mercy will right every wrong and his mercy and his might will address every injustice. Jesus will not just do a work with you and I in a very private and personal way, but when Jesus is done, when all is said and done in the arrival of Jesus, we will find that this entire world will be flipped. I point that out because you and I, who happen to think things ain't right around here, uh, we are tempted to develop uh, our own personal uh, angers and worries and strategies uh, to say, how can we right this ship? How can I, like, take over my country? How can I, like, take over this world? How can I, like... And while you and I are salt and light, it is not you and I who will change this world. It is you and I at this moment in God's scheme of the unfolding plans of redemption and salvation who need to turn and trust in Jesus. And when Jesus returns again, he will most fully implement every word that Mary is predicting he will accomplish. We can wait on him. We can trust in him. In fact... As we trust in him right now, do you know where Jesus has begun the work of changing the world? Do you know where Jesus has begun the work of the great reversal? Do you know where Jesus has begun the job of flipping? He begins it in the hearts and lives of his people. The Apostle Paul would tell us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a New creation. In other words, this reset has already begun. It's just that it's not being done on this broad global scale in which we now live in a world that is perfect and, 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 and in harmony, but it's done on a very intimate and personal scale that God is at work in the hearts and lives of his people, stirring in us, giving us joy in the midst of confusion, giving us peace in the midst of conflict, giving us strength in the midst of weariness, that this is the nature of the mercy and might of our God at this moment. And it's real and it's true because it's rooted in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus For here is how God has displayed both his might and his mercy in Christ. He's done it in a way that would defy all of the learned of this world. He's done it like this. Jesus Christ is the only true God who in his victorious might demonstrated his greatness and his exaltation and his superiority by humbling himself and becoming obedient. 
You see, Jesus Christ did what you and I are incapable of doing. He obeyed God flawlessly. And yet this Jesus, who had the muscle, who had the might, if you would, and yet who, praise God, had the mercy, chose not to flex his muscle to our destruction, but, but to use his might to humble himself, to go to the cross, and there at the cross be humbled, might we even say to be humiliated as wicked men seized him and put him to death. And yet that was all in the plan of God to show that God's might is best and quickly displayed in God's humility in his son, Jesus. So this morning, all who look to Jesus, all who trust in Jesus, find not only an immediate relationship with the God who made us, but we now find our future and our destiny. That, he, that Jesus moves in, and the first thing he changes in this universe is the hearts and souls of his people so that we now have new loves and new desires. And out of those new loves and new desires, we now live in a different direction with an entirely different purpose. And now living in a new direction with a new purpose, we now have sh a new shaping and reshaping of our thoughts and our emotions and our actions and even the way we relate to each other. This change is found only in Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Trust in the one who is mighty in mercy. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what your word teaches us concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his arrival. And it is our prayer, Father, that you, as you are at work, as your mercy is at work, that we would rely upon Jesus this morning, that we would trust him in the midst of chaos and disharmony and confusion and turmoil and even affliction, that we would find in Jesus everything our hearts need and that we would wait for Jesus to bring a new heavens and a new earth. We know he is mighty. We know he is merciful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's